0: and welcome to The Cusp, the completely unnecessary sceptical well, uh, podcast. A sceptical podcast from the bottom of the planet. Today is Friday the 4th of December and this is our pilot episode, episode 0. My name is Nathan and joining me today, as always, Chrissy and Craig. Normally we'll have a column and a column as well, but they're not here today. First item is news. One that I would Oof. like to talk about is New Image, which is that the people who have actually been talking about it on the Skeptics in the Pub forum, they're a multi-level marketing company selling, now I haven't done any research into this myself personally, but they are selling what I consider to be quack products uh, via a multi-level marketing scheme. And they're a New so, Zealand so company. They
1: combine quack products and
0: multi-level marketing. marketing. I know. Hello. Bang for your buck, wow. right? Because yeah. they've been in the paper recently, in the business news, for making a $14 million Profit or something. Now the funny story is, for the purposes of full disclosure, I know the guy that owns the company. He's actually a magician. He also gives me money. Um, I've actually done two jobs. Stop right there! Can't (laughs)
2: it.
0: Full disclosure. Full disclosure. (laughs) This may prevent me from talking about them in any great depth, but I've actually done two jobs for them. One where I had to program up a laser and i had to sit through their, their whole presentation where they were giving awards to various people and clips from their ads showing how great all of their colostrum and so this is cam type products. Right? So yes right? yeah well like i say, i haven't done the research but as far as i could tell from what i've seen they are they are peddling quackery and uh vicky told us not to use the word quack so uh, we'll probably cut that out as well so, yeah, and I did another job for them just recently where, again, I had to go and I had to set up some lights and program some chases and, and program the laser. And I have to tell you, I, I felt horrible the whole time because I had to program things like win and success and, and the little logo into the laser. And, and I, did, I did feel like a bit of a, um, a quizling. <laughs> yes. Sold out. Thank you, a sellout. But I did it for money. So I feel that's justified and I did charge them at about the maximum I thought I could get away with, not that they'll miss it. So yeah, stuff that's been in the news we can talk about on the podcast, Um, stuff that hasn't that I've heard in their various meetings. The last one I actually stuck headphones in and I listened to Tim Minchin at at full volume and I read The Greatest Show on Earth (laughs) so I was being as sceptical as I could be. That was your antidote. That was indeed. Inoculating myself against the um, multilevel magic.
1: A school getting some money from Scientology. Yes.
0: Okay so here we go. Scientology, a school that has been linked to Scientology. and yeah, yeah, yeah. They, 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 were, they were using some Elron Hubbard books mm. as material in the school.
1: And L. Ron um, Hubbard is the founder of the Church of
0: Scientology. Thank you, because the audience Quite didn't know that. London, but the, the upshot that? was that the school was getting $1.4 million or something in grants because they're a school um, and the school itself is linked to Scientology and um, they're teaching some Elron Hubbard material in the school. Interesting. To the children, yeah. So it it's not a large face-to-face. school, it's quite a small school, about 70 children or something like that. So that's our news item for the day.
1: Well, certainly something um, something recent that is uh, not necessarily sceptical related, but science related, is the, the, the asteroid that was found in Antarctica back in 1984, ALH 84-001, yes. which um, supposedly in the 90s was revealed to um, have evidence of uh, Martian martian life and was then. i remember that cold water was poured on that it was apparently there were better explanations for the the microfossils that appeared in, in the meteorite than martian life well earlier this week there was an announcement of an upcoming announcement about how they they've revisited that they have apparently now disproved the theories that said that in fact there were better explanations for it than life and so perhaps there is The story will come back and perhaps there is some further good proof of these fossilised microbial life in this Martian asteroid. That
0: is very interesting. Awesome. (laughs) Uh, The next segment is Meet the Hosts. We're all going to introduce ourselves one episode at a time and I've volunteered to start. I used to be a fundamentalist Christian and a young Earth creationist. People in the room may hey, even be surprised to hear that because it's not something I tell people <laughs> very often.
2: Yeah, that's that's beard. the man who owns noticed.
0: the recording studio. His cell phone is going off. Hello, Nathan's phone. No. <laughs> is that God speaking? That's right. Hello. <laughs> it could yeah. be a client and he's just answered. Yeah, okay. So, carrying on. Thank you. Fundamentalist Christian and a young earth creationist. I believed in a literal seven day creation. Was it for me? Yes, yeah, I was God, <laughs> and he heard that. He wants to talk to you. Excellent. Do carry on. My skeptical journey started around about 2004, 2005. A friend of mine gave me pen and Teller bullshit to watch. And I watched Penn & Teller Bullshit. I didn't particularly like the episodes on creationism. And I didn't particularly like the episode on the Bible. But I liked, loved the rest of it. And one of them featured James Randi. So I went to randy.org. I joined up for the forums. And I started talking to people and arguing with people. We had some, I had some interesting discussions on the religion and philosophy forums. I... Um, I think i more or less got my ass handed to me, and I never really went back. <laughs> I still don't go in there, in there these days. Over the course of about a year, this is 2006, so quite recently, I basically went from being a fundamentalist Christian and young earth creationist to a hardcore skeptic and a full-on atheist. So that took about a year. And I sort of went through stages of, well okay, there probably still is a God, but Maybe he doesn't have the same sort of interaction with the world that I used to think he did. To, well, if he doesn't interact with the world, then why do I believe in him in the first place? And he ended up an atheist. I need to tell you a bit about my background. It's a, um, a brick wall. Um, there's a window in it, and uh, there's a couch up against that. <laughs> thank you, thank you, the sound effects there, Mr. Craig. I, uh, I'm a magician, and I work in theater. I volunteer in theater, do lighting and backstage. And I'm a sceptic. How long have you
1: been a magician for
0: Nathan? I've been a magician since my early teens I guess. I sort of started watching on TV. Um, I copied a few things. I learned how to do a French drop by watching someone do it on TV once. Uh, And I'm still working on it. I've Nearly got it down. And uh, I just sort of bought magic tricks and when I moved to Auckland I joined a magic club. Uh, And I work in a library. I'm a learning centre coordinator, which means I supervise people using the computers really. Answer difficult questions like, how do I attach a CV to my email? How or, do I open a new tab? <laughs> how do I open a new tab? Oh, Fortunately, we cool. don't have Macintoshes. <laughs> There's an in-joke there, which none of you are going to get, so we'll cut that out. And that's me. So, the next thing is the topic that we're going to be talking about. And the topic is psychic detectives. Specifically, I think, in the New Zealand, from the New Zealand point of view, uh, we have a show here called Sensing Murder... I have got some information that We're I. Into the third second. season. Third season, they are. And I didn't print off my actual notes. A difficult third season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, not much to tell you really. There's a company called um, Ninox or Ninox that runs it. And they bought it off of a uh, Dutch company. I'll probably tell you what the Dutch company's name is if anybody cares. Danish Nordisk Film TV. Uh, invented it and they sold it to the um, Ninox in New Zealand and they've basically franchised it around the world. I think the Australians have a sense in murder. When I was doing some research, I found the Victorian Skeptics website, who I assume are sceptics that dress in very non-revealing clothing and are very repressed about sex. Victorian, see how I did that? Put it it's going to
2: be a
1: comedy podcast.
0: <laughs> We're going to throw some jokes in it, otherwise no one's going to want to listen to it. And they have a sensing murder over there, and they've done a very, very, very um, sensible debunking of it. And what it basically comes down to...
1: I believe they've actually got it removed from television.
0: Oh, is that right? In Australia. Basically what their argument comes down to, and I actually hadn't thought of this until I went to the website. This is the first time I've actually read this. One of the points they make is that the psychics are put in a room with a photo, which they turn face down, so they don't get any information from it. And they're not told anything about the crime. So presumably, the the whole premise, of course, is that the psychics don't know anything. And here, sceptics will argue, there's a couple of threads on the James Randi forums about it, and they're arguing that, well, the psychics probably do know information. They're they're cold reading, and they're getting clues from the the crew and the producers, and blah, 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 blah. What the Victorian sceptics have basically said is, why aren't they given the information? If they are getting new, fantastic, uh, important information from the dead, or from the other side, or or from um, an astrological chart, as one guy, I think, does it in Australia, why don't they give them all the case information that they have so far, and then ask them for new information, information that we don't already have? What it is effectively that they're doing is basically a carnival sideshow, where they're just proving that they can be psychic by revealing all this information that we already know what we want is new information why don't they do that why don't they give them the case files give them everything we know and then say okay now tell us who did it tell us where the body is anything anything that we didn't already know
2: and of course they, they've uh, missed a control aspect too like they put a photograph of say paris hilton's chihuahua instead
0: yeah so, that's and exactly and, and what information do they get from that mm-hmm. yeah but again, again that's, that's going back to the whole concept of the psychics every episode and more or less just proving that they're psychic. Now, that's not really what the show is purportedly about. What we should be seeing is just give them everything. Tell them what the case is about. Tell them the names of the people that are involved and then say, okay, now tell us what we didn't already know. But that
3: wouldn't make good TV.
0: Exactly. And that's, and that's the point. It's, 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 it's not about solving crimes. It's not about helping people. It's about good TV. It's about bad TV. Sorry, sorry you're quite right. Yes,
1: it's about ratings generally.
0: Ratings. I mean, it's good TV if people watch it, and obviously people are watching it. So maybe that's the key to getting them take it take it off TV. Yes, is to is to get people to stop watching it. I don't know. I guess that's the battle that skeptics are fighting already, is to convince people that psychics aren't real. Psychics aren't doing that.
1: Probably goes without saying to say that the, the track record of the number of murders that have been solved by the psychics on the show zero
0: yes and that was going to be my next point as well so well done thank you <laughs> that i like to say the <laughs> no, no, this is good because <laughs> more, more people talking other than me I is good agree. because it's not a podcast about me as much as as that would be an awesome podcast we really do want you guys to contribute as well, well I, th- I
2: think you actually hit on another point though like about you
0: know, how awesome i am yeah. <laughs> well
2: yeah. aside from that yes of uh the idea of what actually are uh, we trying to do. I mean, it's not just sitting around pub having a bit of fun at the expense of uh, some stupid woman with bad hair on the Good Morning show with some overly talking spirits who are sitting on her shoulder while she's reading for a piece of paper. It's actually, I think, to get the message out to just stop this shit. You never will, but it, uh, no. I mean, people actually subscribe to it because they don't know there's no alternative. And we are sceptics and really... Not that well-known, you know, you kind of have to look for it. It's not stuck in your face like this
0: other stuff. On one hand, it's kind of a losing battle. I think we should build an army. Skeptical army. Perhaps That could be the name for the podcast, Skeptical Army. Yeah. The other point that I was going to make about the psychics and there's a lot of people saying well there's this evidence for the psychics psychics are real blah 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 who are these people in America that are doing these experiments Um, someone help me out with the name the peer labs and they're doing the sensory deprivation and they're doing the the, the ESP cards and they're getting these minor fluctuations in the data and they're saying okay so this proves that that psychics are real and people will say oh but she said whole and fallen so therefore she was obviously seeing the little girl in the drainage ditch, X number of meters down the, down the hole. And they, they said, well, this is this is proof that well, the site like is real. Does. Why don't they
3: get more information? Why they to and get that's exactly
0: to what I'm saying. If you go back and you ask the question, if she had given us this information at the beginning, before the little girl was found, how much use would it have been? Would it have helped us find the little girl? And the answer is invariably, as far as I can tell, no. I see a dead body. I see trees. I see water. I see rocks okay that's great you've just predicted where the body was but knowing that information does that help us find it does it help us solve the case and if anyone's listening has any information or situations where where a psychic has actually given detailed information that's helped solve a case write in or send us an email that's assuming anyone's actually listening to the podcast hi both of you (laughs)
2: the audience was on (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, well I'd love to see a case where a psychic is given detailed information and that's actually solved a case. Now that in and of itself isn't necessarily gonna prove anything, but if we had two or three of those, or four or five, then maybe I'd start to I'd start to maybe have an open mind. And that's really a, the Maybe the, you close
1: well, your
2: mind a little more to that explanation.
0: The, yeah, uh, yeah. the, the
2: sky casino <laughs> obviously doesn't believe in it No. there's no sign outside saying um no no psychics. No psychics. Uh, no yeah. And in fact, like if you look at that, the 9/11, the you know the World Trade Center. How how many people died there? Thousand, six thousand. How many would have been doing regular psychic? Yeah.
0: Visits. Yeah. And how many of those? How many of them uh, got a, got the psychic saying you're going to die in a fiery inferno? To oh, in actual fact, there's a really
2: funny story about psychics. I don't know stop, if you've heard this one. We've got plenty of tape anyway. We it Yeah, we've out. heard this one. Stop. Uh, <laughs> Peter Sellers, of course, Was a regularly visited a psychic. You've heard that story, have you? I think I've heard. Yeah. Uh, no, I some, well, I I don't think I have. Tell us was anyway. Absolutely. You know, reliant <laughs> on it That's every week we right. go. And as it happened, Blake Edwards was trying to get the the, Pink Panther movies going. Right. So he he went to Peter Sellers would go to the psychic. And of course, Peter Sellers' agent had already primed the psychic to go, I see a very great opportunity coming. I see the initials B.E. So next thing, of course, Blake Edwards comes along with the... No, no, the first thing that happened was, sorry... He met Britt Eklund in a hotel. Ah. <laughs> and so he married Britt Eklund, and then, and then the next thing that happened, of course, <laughs> it, it was. Oh, that's um, marvellous. Yeah, yeah, Blake Edwards' side of it was really good. The Britt Eklund's side wasn't that flash, but. Uh, <laughs> but the faith and the, and the, the fact that he, he. these initials, just by chance, you know, the, the fact that the BE actually was from Blake
0: Edwards. <laughs> Insane. And that's the harm. People believe what they're told, and then they go and do stupid and things. I don't personally know Britt Eklund, She may be a lovely woman, but oh, fine, uh, <laughs>
2: Sorry, I'll just
0: do it if I carry No, I think I think we've covered so Psychic detectives. Really? There's really not that much you can say. Yeah. So, do we
1: know when um, the new series of Sentinel Murder is actually starting?
0: Yes, I do. It was on Wikipedia. It's 2010 that it is supposed to be starting. Season three, no, season four, 2010, is currently scheduled to screen in early mid 2010. So presumably it's in production at the moment. Very, very, very close to being done, I'd say. I wonder if there's anybody on
1: the crew that could give us some insight. That would be a great great interview.
0: Consensus there, I think, is that we all don't believe in psychic detectives, anyone? Good, right.
1: Yep.
0: (laughs) Proven. See? That easy it is the next segment is Woo Zealand that's stuff that's happening in New Zealand stuff that we feel is relevant to Kiwis and today instead of having a set topic we're going to have our interview with the chair entity of the New Zealand Skeptics Vicky Hyde Hi Nathan Okay, so we'll just start asking questions, shall we? Sure. So, for those who don't know who you are, can you give us some, some info and background and what qualifies
3: you to be a sceptic? Uh, well, you know, I've been head of the New Zealand Sceptics or chair entity for the last ooh, 17 years or so. I've had a long-term interest in science and the paranormal right from the days when I was a kid getting books on Velikovsky and <laughs> Asimov out of the library and basically taken it on since then. Well, that just answered about five of my questions. If you want some more background, I started university studying astrophysics and astronomy and found that I could actually make more money by doing astrological birth charts in my off time or during long lab periods, much to the horror of the uh, lab assistants. And then when I ended up doing a my major, actually switched over to psychology. It became fairly apparent why the astrological star charts worked. Nothing to do with astronomy, of course, but a lot to do with human psychology. And that was kind of the underpinning academic interest, as well as the the general science interest.
0: So you actually started out, what well, not as a skeptic, but you came to it through through the astrological readings that you were doing.
3: Well, I was interested in astrology, I guess. Um, at, I partly because of the history component, partly because of the the psychology, partly because of the astronomy type stuff. But it was pretty clear that you could manipulate it any way you want. And the more charts that I did, the more I realized that and recognized that. And I guess as I later progressed on through my skeptical career, the more actually they may be a bit concerned in that um, astrology, for example, depends very much on stereotypes. Mm. So what I often often say to people is, you know, I don't get on at all well with Scorpios i'm a gemini you know scorpios just don't mix well and scorpios are nasty terrible aggressive people they're oversexed. all the different charts and things that you read about scorpios they're, they're pretty grotty at which point you've lost one twelfth of your audience if have yeah. decided they don't like you but the other eleven twelfth is nodding their heads because they've read the same astrological books and then you turn around and you say and i don't like jews or Samoans either <laughs> and that makes people sit bolt upright in their chair because very few people have ever actually considered that astrology uh, works on stereotypes in the same way that uh, deciding what people are like based on their skin colour or their religion or their political viewpoint or anything else yeah. is a stereotype. And it's got that nasty little underpinning and it quite, quite put me off the whole thing.
0: That's a very good point.
3: So I've got to ask,
0: because um, Craig wanted to know, what's your star sign?
3: Uh, officially, my star sign is asparagus.
0: Asparagus.
3: <laughs> yeah, on my um, company website, we have a profile for the staff members and it has star sign and, and mine says asparagus. And I got rung up by the head of the New Zealand Asparagus Council one day wanting to know why our website was number one on a Google search for asparagus in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Classy. I'm a Gemini with Gemini rising, actually. Uh, does that actually mean anything? Well, um, with, with Mercury in the 12th house, which is a sign of communications, I'm supposed to be psychic apparently. OK, now
0: you're just making shit up. <laughs> <laughs> what astrology? So you've been this, the cheer entity for how
3: long? 17 years, God help me. 17 years. That's, um, that's quite a long time. I guess you've traditionally had long-term presidents. uh, Warwick, who was president uh, or or chair before me, I think was in there for 10 years. Personally, I'm kind of philosophically opposed to having been in the position that long, but it does require an unusual blend of skills in some respects. The the willingness to be polite to some DJ who rings you at 7 o'clock in the morning on Friday the 13th with this neat idea of talking to the head of sceptics about why Friday the 13th is a bad idea. If you can wake up and be polite... And get a point across then, you know, you will be a man, my son, as Kipling said, or a head of sceptics, as the case may be.
0: How many would you say are in the New Zealand sceptics? How many members?
3: We've got about 500 paid up members. We have about 1,500 plus on our email alert list. So there's a lot of people who are interested. And in fact, it's something that's happening worldwide. There's lots of grassroots stuff happening with people, um, particularly Um, digital natives looking at things like Facebook, using things like Skeptics in the Pub and and, um, digital networking of one form or another, to actually spread the word and, and stories out there, as well as the, the more formal, sort of longer-term organisations, such as the New Zealand Skeptics or, or PSYCOP in the States. So the grassroots movement is actually benefiting the official sceptics? I'd say it's, it's a two-way relationship, actually. The grassroots, some of whom actually don't know about the, the official or the, or the back history of scepticism in general, they just got fed up with some of the woo that's out there. They provide, I guess, new blood and invigoration for the old-timers, as it were, who are used to dealing in you know journal articles and dead tree paper stuff, Mm. and vice versa, the official organisations that are out there actually provide some of that background and history and resources, so it's a really good relationship that I see growing here, and it's happening elsewhere. The Skeptical Inquirer, the most recent one, for example, out of the States, had three or four articles looking at this whole sceptic generation 2.0, as they called it, and it's really good to see and very, very heartening for the future. How long
1: have the New Zealand Skeptics actually been an organisation?
3: We were officially incorporated in 1984, I think it was. It was either 84 or 86, so we've been going quite some time, and we've built up quite a lot of resources and information and material over that period. But just getting some of the more social things operational now with the help of, of networks, you know, such as Skeptics in the Pub and the great work that's been going there by a whole bunch of people who initially or certainly hadn't been members of the Skeptics, just keen to sort of get the word out there. And that's great. It's all power for all of us.
0: When I first joined the Sceptics, I was, you know, where do I go? I want to have a weekly meeting. Or where are the Sceptics meeting? And there wasn't any meetings. There wasn't any sort of regular, ongoing, regional things happening. But my question, though, is is why hasn't the New Zealand Sceptics been doing things like that already?
3: I think part of it is we have done it from time to time. And it's a matter of having people on the ground who are willing to help with the organisation. It's actually quite a lot of work to find yourself a physical venue if you want to do something formal, such as, say, a series of lectures or a conference or all that sort of thing. There's a lot of work involved. And from time to time, we have had that. Auckland has had a year or two of regular meetings. We had them here in Christchurch. We had them in Wellington. But they're very much dependent on people on the ground willing to put their time in. Something like accept in the pub is great because it doesn't necessarily need a formal venue, so it doesn't have the problems of, you know, booking something and then then paying for a venue and then finding a speaker and then advertising it. And I think it's that kind of loose organisation which actually makes it very, very strong.
0: So what are the particular Kiwi sceptical issues?
3: We have very similar issues to those overseas. Quite often we get them, I guess, six months after they become big, say, in the States. Uh, I remember, um, much to my regret and sadness, predicting, for example, that we would have a case of claimed ritual satanic abuse at an early childhood care centre about, I think, a couple of months before the Ellis case broke here in Christchurch. Just purely on what we'd seen happening in the States and the fact that we knew that some of the um, people who had been involved in that whole area had actually come over to New Zealand to run workshops um, for various councillors and police. And so we could see this is something that's liable to happen, and, and lo, we were right. We, of course, have a variety of different kinds of things that go on here, uh, not necessarily specifically only to New Zealand. I mean, we have our, our big alternative health industry, of course, because there's big money in that, and, and New Zealanders are just as interested in their own body health as anybody else, their well-being and wellness. So we see a lot of that happening here. We see sort of you know, the bits and pieces, I mean, the, the UFOs, um, Bruce Cappy is our own special uh, contribution, I guess, to the paranormal in that uh, particular scene. So there's a variety of things uh, that are found in the New Zealand environment with our own little twists.
1: So coming back to the Peter Alice case, did the New Zealand sceptics actually have anything to say at the time that might have sort of affected people's opinions about the case?
3: We certainly had a lot of information come into us from people who were concerned from a whole pile of different kinds of arenas, you know, people who were worried about false memory, people who were worried about the use of children as witnesses, people who were worried about uh, the idea that you can say somebody's been sexually abused because they don't like spaghetti, you know, that they've been ritually abused and, and animal sacrificed. The other thing that we did was we actually ended up donating fifteen hundred dollars to the Peter Ellis Defence Fund and we actually had a member resign over that. and I write, wrote quite a long piece for the New Zealand Skeptic Journal saying, why is the New Zealand skeptics giving money to a convicted child abuser? And well here's why. You know, we we will never know if Peter Ellis was innocent or guilty. I mean only he really, really knows that. But we can certainly say the case raised a lot of questions that should make us very, very wary about the way in which those kinds of claims are handled, are managed, and are prosecuted. Uh, I know for that myself, coming out of having read all that stuff, I'd be very wary about serving on a New Zealand jury, which I think is a shame, because I think it's an important thing to do as a citizen. But I'd, I'd have great questions about doing it, having seen that you don't get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in a case like that. You get selected portions of it, and that's dangerous. Is that the fault of the system? <coughs> is that just something that's built into the New Zealand legal system? I think it's something that's possibly built into most legal systems because, of course, you know, if somebody's going for a conviction, they want to focus down onto what are the best possible ways of getting that conviction, and let's, you know, get rid of anything that sounds extraneous or weird or, or could possibly have a you know a bad effect on that. And you can understand the motivation for that, but nonetheless, you have to say, well, that sort of information may well have a bearing on whether somebody is innocent or not. The example I used at the time was if I had said that. I was wandering along the road having dropped some acid and spinning out and these aliens picked me up and they took me to Venus and I met Shirley MacLaine and then I came back and they dropped me off uh, and I saw O.J. Simpson kill his wife and then the police went into court with me as a witness saying, I saw O.J. Simpson kill his wife. You have to think, all that preamble has got a bearing on the credibility of the final statement. But if that preamble doesn't get told to the jury and they just hear, I I saw O.J. Simpson kill his wife, how are they to know whether it's a credible statement or not? And that's the thing that makes me nervous about, you know, getting involved in, in, a, in a case because I'm going to be sitting there wondering, what haven't I been told? And one thing that being in the sceptics teaches you is you don't have to be foolish to be fooled. It's quite possible to be fooled in all sorts of different ways, shapes and forms. And we've seen that over the years from, say, conference presentations where we've looked at how unreliable memory is, how easy it is to, you know, when you're focusing on one thing, to miss all the extraneous kind of information that's around there. The sorts of things that you can, how you, how easy it is to, to kind of tamper with memory and, and our own biases. One of the important things I think that the sceptics teach people is really be careful about your own assumptions and biases about what you think of about the world and how it works.
0: Do you think that Kiwis are overall more or less sceptical than the rest of the
3: world? Well, the world's a pretty big place. I think that we're probably more sceptical than, say, much of the US. We don't seem to have the same problems that they have over there. We have fairly... Fairly rare occurrences of the Virgin Mary being seen in pieces of burnt toast here and and being a major news item. We have our own foibles, um, but I think also possibly the traditional tendency for Kiwis to be fairly practical about things and pragmatic about things may help. And of course, being far more secular than the US, I think also helps a great deal.
0: So let's say comparing us to Britain, which is a similar level of secularism.
3: I'm not sure because I haven't really had a, a great deal of um, experience, I guess, within the British cultural context. I mean, they have a sceptic society and with good reason. I, I guess if you want to look at things globally, the, the ones that always come across as uh, the most under threat probably would be the Indian sceptics. who have to deal with a whole society which is so very strongly religiously based and, and very strongly in the hands of people like you know the, the godmen and various gurus and things. And, reading their magazine can be quite disheartening at times. You know, you think, oh, these poor souls. So we do have a
0: relatively easy time of it over here.
3: We do, but I'm concerned about things, for example, such as the, the rise in the alternative um, health industry, um, the so-called alternative medicine, as somebody put it, scam, which I think is great. That's been... We've seen that rise, and it's become actually more a core interest of the sceptics uh, in over the past decade or so than it has been hitherto. And part, part of that is because, you know, we're seeing government money going into funding alternative medicine, ministerial advisory committees on complementary alternative health processes. We've seen our hospitals go in for having healing touch rooms, you know, and that sort of thing really shouldn't be done without somebody standing up and saying, well, tell me, is it actually better than what we're doing now?
1: And recently there was the, um, uh, the case of uh, the ACC wanting to save money and it occurred to me where they should be looking at the, the things that are funded by the ACC that don't have a lot of evidence for them, such as acupuncture and, and so on.
3: Yes, that's certainly a concern. I mean, they they took on the physiotherapists, and one could argue that possibly physiotherapists are being overused, but certainly you can actually point to good positive outcomes of physiotherapy and good um, evidence-based medicine for the use of physiotherapy over a whole host of different kinds of areas. People often talk about the Hippocratic Oath, you know, first do no harm, and after all, alternative health is great because, you know, it doesn't do any harm, there's no side effects because, of course, you're swallowing sugar pills and vitamins and drinking water. But the thing I think that should be the second thing is, sure, first do no harm, second do some damn good. And if it's something that does no harm, that does good, that does better than what we currently have, it's not alternative health, it's medicine.
1: And there's harm being done to the taxpayer.
3: Well, taxpayer and also, I think, to the consumer as well. The thing I find that is, is that we don't have that much protection for the consumer in that area. There's not really any organisation tasked with keeping an eye on the alternative health area and the claims that are being made and whether those claims are living up to you know consumer protection laws, the kind of outcomes that are happening. Every now and then you'll see a coroner's case are fortunately relatively rare but you will see them which involves alternative health practices every now and then you'll hear of a doctor who's been struck off because of their doing stuff which is inappropriate for a medical doctor but then they can go out and and practice their naturopathy and we've seen that happen here in New Zealand and Hamilton and other places and even the health and disabilities commissioner I think one of the most shocking things we had at one of our conferences was when a representative from them stood up and said well if an iridologist diagnoses something with you and they get it wrong and you put a complaint in, our process will be to ask other iridologists whether they made the diagnosis correctly based on the theory of iridology. Now, you can kind of see where they're coming from in that if you have a back complaint, they're not going to ask a physiotherapist whether the orthopedic surgeon did the right thing. They're talking to people in their own modality. But we had assumed, I guess, that the Health and Disability Commission would first ask, is this a reasonable health you know, treatment? And they don't well there's no questioning of what their claims are and that's the hardest thing to get across to people particularly when the I guess the media in general treat this kind of area very very softly I mean they'll write about homeopathy and they'll talk about it being a special kind of way of delivering a medicine you know that light cures light without actually going and saying well it's the equivalent of saying I'll put a cup of sugar into the pacific ocean and give it a darn good stir and it's really really sweet now most people will go you what if it's explained in that fashion but merely just saying it's special dilution makes it sound as if it's got some kind of legitimacy.
1: But I get the feeling that the, most of the New Zealand public actually don't know what homeopathy really is, and because of that, they tend to accept it And, and when they go to the chemist.
3: Yes, and the brightening thing is actually seeing chemists who have things like homeopathic first aid kits on their shelves. They'll have that, and they'll have rescue remedy and all those other things because they sell. And my question to them is, is the health professional you see most often, that lovely marketing phrase they like, is it that they don't know enough about health and their products that they don't understand that they're selling, you know, what look like bogus medicines, um, or is it that they do understand and they don't care? Either way, they're not the health professional I want. You should probably avoid saying bogus,
0: <coughs> because we don't want to have to edit your interview there. So let's I'm say let's say a, a allegedly bogus allegedly
3: bogus. Can we can we do that? I said looks like bogus. All right, all right. Vicky says bogus. It before you know.
0: Okay.
3: <laughs> it looks like bogus, and I wasn't referring to a specific organisation. <laughs> so, so we're okay. You've got to tread a very fine line.
0: <laughs> and I suppose that's something as the as the spokesperson as well for the for the sceptics that you have to deal with on a on a regular basis is, is your phraseology and and the way you deal with things.
3: Phraseology, you've got to be careful about because you can't use words like quacks about a specific. Individual, unless you actually have specific information that you could take and, and stand up in a court of law about. The other thing that's really hard is when you're asked to comment on a particular topic, the answers aren't easy, simple soundbite answers. Somebody can say, I'll cure cancer with this rice box. Now, to explain why it's highly unlikely they're going to be able to cure cancer, will actually take a significant amount of time, which the television and, and even the papers these days aren't really prepared to give you.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a fair call, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I, I, I guess the standard response really should be, show us the evidence that it works, and that should be the, the default position.
3: And they'll then they'll point to all their testimonials from people. The thing is, particularly with health, 80% of what's ailing you will get better within a couple of days, regardless of whether you're taking antibiotics or waving a crystal over it, or you've had a, a massage or um, a face healer, because that's the nature of the human body and human response to illnesses. You Very rarely, in fact, I don't think I've ever heard of a homeopathic cure for a broken leg. Well, I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest, if they did. I had a particular herb recommended to me when I had a broken leg. It was called, oh gosh, what was it called? It was called bone weed, I think. Bones, yeah. And the idea was that it was supposed to help setting bones. And in fact, it was actually used in medieval times, but from what I could see, it was actually used as an anti-inflammatory. It was to get the swelling down around a compound fracture wasn't actually doing anything to help your bone heal at all. I mean, the thing is, you've got to keep looking at these kinds of claims because maybe one of these days, one of these jokers will come up with a cure for cancer and that will be absolutely magnificent or will find a way to get rid of all the possums in the country that actually works. It will be wonderful. So you've got to keep an open mind. And the thing I find interesting and a bit disheartening at times is this idea from, the, I guess, the other side that sceptics are all closed-minded and dogmatic. I mean, we're the ones who actually want to keep looking. We don't think we've found the answer. Oh, the answer is not necessarily in a crystal. If it isn't a crystal, let's find out whether it actually is an answer. That's the definition of an open mind to me. People who keep asking questions.
1: Yeah, that's, that certainly seems to be a, a common response, that, that we're closed-minded sceptics, and yeah, yeah. that's the end of and the conversation.
3: And yet, in my experience, it's usually been the other side who are very close-minded to the point of where I went on a ghost-hunting expedition once, and the woman who said that she could sense ghosts in the house refused to come because I was going to be there. I was asked to turn up in a radio studio and have the the dead who were clustering around me talked to by a a psychic, a medium, who then uh, said, oh, she couldn't possibly do that because skeptics hurt the spiritual world. Oddly enough, she hadn't noticed that when I talked to her for about 20 minutes at her book launch. right. (laughs) And, and these are people who will claim that they're open-minded, they're just letting you know, the, the wonders of the world you know, flow through them. And of course, again, the classic sceptic line is, yes, be open-minded, but not so open that your brains fall out.
0: In fact, it really comes down to the different definition of open-minded. Uh, when the believers say that they're open-minded, what they're actually saying is we just believe anything. So that um, it's a different, different usage of the phrase.
3: Well, well, yeah, I mean, people imbue words with the power that they want them to power, and, and open-minded to them means we're open-minded because we have this particular belief, and that's the belief that we are open about. It's a bit like the creationists saying that evolution is just a theory, when in fact, in science-speak, theory isn't just an idea or a hunch I had. It's actually something that's done near equivalent to a law. Can you tell us what some of your favourite... New Zealand woo stories or or things that you've dealt with? I guess my favourite one has to be the 1956 UFO sighting. Now I wasn't around at that time, but having read the reports about it, the idea that uh, there were all sorts of reports up and down the country of two UFOs which apparently came in over the North Cape, flitted apart, Um, one was spotted over Hastings and another one was spotted over towards New Plymouth and then they must have come back together again over Cook Strait because they were both seen together in Christchurch and then flitted off east and west again. And the cops and radio stations and papers had all these reports from people up and down the country that had seen these things, and it was documented as one of the best documentations of UFOs of all time, and particularly seeing one of the other UFOs was apparently seen in the Gulf of Mexico later on. Ah, uh, the, same,
0: the same UFO.
3: Yeah, well, obviously, it was on the same greater circle, I guess, as Bruce Cathy would have put it. But the thing that was wonderful was it was a hoax put together by a bunch of Otago University students, some of whom, um, after being knighted by the Crown for services to medicine or becoming university professors, ended up in the skeptics, oddly enough. They, they ran as hoax and they had given these briefing sheets out to their mates at Knox College. And as everyone flitted off up and down the country for their holidays, saying, Here, if you live in, in Whangarei, ring your local radio station at this time saying you've seen this. And they had this whole briefing shit was brilliant.
0: Oh, that's quite mm-hmm. clever. So there was never actually anything to see. No, they, they never just did it with, with phone calls. That was quite interesting. The um, Bruce
2: Cathy—that's a name I haven't heard for a long, long time. Because that was the Captain Bruce Cathy. I, I gather you're referring to. Wrote a book called Harmonic Three Three Three. Yes, he he it? had a theory
1: of there being these um, grid, yeah. grid lines under the sea, and and he'd taken photographs of them. And he had all these his mat- mathematical formulas that perfectly lined up with where they were supposed to be.
3: Yeah, it was one of the reasons why I took an interest in logarithms when I was in fourth form, because I was working my way through Bruce Cathy at the time. Um, I went to see Eric Gondanikin when I was 14, when he came out on a tour to New Zealand. I got my father, dragged him along to uh, take me to it. Um, I was a member of the, the founder member of the New Zealand Space Flight Association, which was a slightly more serious kind of uh, organisation. So there were all these kinds of things happening, um, I guess, in my background that made me interested in this sort of stuff. The thing that was interesting about the 1956 UFO thing the story about actually how it happened didn't come out for about 25 years. And it only came out because the reporter started doing some digging on this amazingly documented UFO sighting, I think after the Kaikoura UFO had been seen. And so they were doing a background story and came across this. And one of the guys happened to still have his briefing sheet. It's been reproduced in a copy of the New Zealand Skeptic, and it's a wonderful example of how you can put together a complicated hoax, and nobody get around to telling anybody. They're just doing it for their share share fun and enjoyment, and never being revealed. it's a bit like the um what they call the surgeon's photo um, of the Loch Ness monster. It's the classic one that you see, a man revealed on his deathbed that he was involved as a as a kid. And putting together a toy submarine and a couple of bits and pieces and taking you know helping them to to take the shots. yeah,
0: yeah. all the fox sisters was yes. it the yeah, and they revealed it just when they were when they were older sales
3: and, yeah. yeah but it's the, the whole foundation the sprit- the the or of the spiritualist church yeah is predicated on a hoax yeah, i mean yeah. which they didn't bother telling anyone about
0: so what are, what are the new zealand pseudosciences and paranormal things that you've dealt with that are your least favorite what are your bugbears
3: I think, okay, there were were two, really. Um, One was the, the Peter Ellis case and the whole thing about satanic ritual abuse. And that was very hard to deal with because it had all the same kind of hallmarks that it appeared, I guess, about over the previous five years with UFO abductions and recovered memory from those. But people had then shifted on to something which is far more plausible and, in that case, far more dangerous. And the thing that was really worrying about that was we know that sexual abuse of children happens. We know that you know, we have far too many children who are killed in this country year after year after year. So it's not something you can laugh about. It's not something you can automatically naysay. It's something you do have to pay attention to. But the whole... Dodgy nature of that prosecution and the way in which I guess it affects the kinds of things that happen with the, the, the Salem witch hunts, for example. You have to make you very cautious about public enthusiasms of that nature. And I guess the other thing which I found very hard, difficult to deal with, was the increasing tendency for people to want to put alternative health treatments onto children and say that they're doing it under, you know, informed guidelines and consent. I mean, we saw the case with some Liam Williams Holloway some years back, the wee boy who had a neuroblastoma and was taken out of chemo by his parents and hidden, all with great trumpetings by Paul Holmes and his program, that they were informed because they had read a book called Suppressed Inventions and Other Discoveries. There was a sad case, and, and I think in the end the boy did die. He did die, but of course the alternative health people attributed that because he didn't get enough of the alternative health therapy. And the really sad thing from that was the flow-on effect for oncology departments, paediatric oncologists, who then had to deal with a whole host of parents saying, well... You know, why should we put our children through, through this? Chemotherapy is nasty. It's so much nicer if you can just get them to hold a little galvanic skin response thing and think their cancers away. And I had one oncologist ring me just about in tears trying to find information on, in that stage, a, a rice-frequency machine to try and convince the parents that he was dealing with that it, it was a you know 50 cents worth of electronics dressed up as $5,000 worth of equipment by their local Wellness clinic that was not going to do anything for their child.
0: I hear you're a close personal friend of Ray Banana Man Comfort.
3: <laughs> I remember Ray Comfort back from my university days um, when he was preaching in the square in Christchurch. Uh, you'd have the wizard, you'd had Ray, you had the birdman, you had the violin lady, Bible lady, and um, there are a whole host of them there. And I remember annoying Ray one day. I actually had a chalk in my pocket for some reason, and I ended up drawing a very large pentagram around his chair as he was standing on it preaching. <laughs>
0: And how did he react to that?
3: He just kept on going. Nothing would stop that man.
0: That, that seems to be about par for the course. He's uh, not really the sort of man you can shut up.
3: Well, he's certainly done very well for himself in the States. We certainly import enough of their mediums and things. I guess it's nice to be able to export some of ours.
0: Well, on one hand, it's nice to be rid of him. But on the other hand, he's kind of doing a little bit better over there than he, than he would have if he'd stayed in New Zealand.
3: Mm, quite possibly.
0: So, based on all your years of experience,
3: are you positive about the future of, I guess, scepticism and rational thinking? I think skeptics in general are a very optimistic lot because one of the tenets, I guess, of skepticism is that we kind of believe that if you give people enough information, they'll be sensible enough to make up their own minds and hopefully in the right direction. And there always does seem to be this sort of kind of optimistic idea that you can rationalize and reason your way into better understanding of the world around you. I do have to confess I have a, a certain degree of sympathy for, I think, Mark Twain comment where he said that you can't reason a man out of a position he hasn't been reasoned into. But nonetheless, I mean, the thing I find intriguing when I look at organized skeptics, and they're a quite a diverse group. I mean, again, the stereotype is that they're elderly, balding scientists. But in fact, when you look at them, they are broad range of political opinions, quite a broad ra- range of religious and spiritual opinions, oddly enough, quite a range of ages, um, more so these days than they have been in the past, perhaps. But the only thing that really they have in common is this sense of optimism, that's the fact that you can learn more about the world, that the world is a wonderful, magical, interesting place. And the more you learn, the more you want to learn. A sense of humour, I guess, partly because, you know, I laugh in order that I might not weep. But, I mean, you just have to laugh sometimes at the crazy things people believe in. And this idea that, you know, it's a good thing to ask questions. I think that's healthy for a society. But the only kind of political and, and religious type people we don't get in the skeptics are the fundamentalists, because the very basis of fundamentalism is you have a set of beliefs and you shall not question them. And I think that's very dangerous when you get a society where, where questioning and, and challenge is not, you know, not allowed.
0: You're talking just then about the belief that if you argue rationally you can convince people, convince people, if you give people the information you can change their mind. That doesn't seem to be necessarily a belief that's borne out by
3: experiment. How do you, what, do you, what do you think about that? Sometimes you can see it work and when it works it's very self-affirming. Here's an example. There's a process that happens when you go to sleep, hypnagogic and processes. Sleep paralysis. It happens just on the verge of sleep, uh, both going to sleep and waking up. It happens to about 5% of people. They wake up, they're paralyzed. They have the sense that something's watching them. They have a sense of malevolence or evil presence. Often they have uh, sexual feelings of one form or another. They feel they're being sexually abused or interfered with. Feel a levitation. They see bright light. Now, these are all very common characteristics that we've heard of before. In fact, they were heard of in the 1500s in association with what people thought were the visits of demons, of incubuses and succubi, And that's how they explained it then. In the 1980s, they explained it as alien abductions. You know, this was when the greys were coming into your room and taking you away off to the UFOs and and interfering with you. What we found is it's just the way in which the brain and the body interact and you can actually reproduce these experiences. And I was talking to somebody about this and, and saying, I found it fascinating that as we learn more about the brain, we understand more about these kinds of things. And she said, yes, she'd had that sort of stuff happen to her and she'd been terrified. 'Cause she hadn't realised that it was a you know that it was a fairly common kind of experience. She didn't know about that, she'd never heard about it. And it gave her a great sense of, of peace, really, to understand that it was just something purely natural, purely physiological and made her a lot happier about going to sleep.
0: Mm. That's gotta make you feel feel quite good
3: about yourself. Oh yeah. Does that happen often? Do you get in a lot of situations like that? You get that when you start to talk to people about some of the things you've discovered. I mean, particularly when you look at the work of somebody like Richard Wiseman from the, the University of Leicestershire, who does these wonderful large-scale public experiments in the States. I mean, I would love to have this job or see somebody take on this kind of role here, being supported to do it here in New Zealand. One of the things, for example, looking at the effects of infrasound. They went to the Edinburgh vaults where they were able to survey people. This is a tourist area where people go in underneath the, the old town of Edinburgh, and there are particular spots there where people will report having what seemed to be ghostly experiences. The hair on the back of their ne- uh, neck rises, they get, feel cold, they get the sense of being watched, they see things out of the, the corners of their eyes. And by surveying the tourists, they found actually there was a common component. This wasn't just sort of random, happening randomly, it happened in a couple of places. And then they said, well, what is it about these places that provide these experiences? And they found um, it was to do with the level of lighting. It was to do with how wide the actual vault was. And it was also to do with the presence of infrasound, very low sound frequencies, which produce a physiological response. It makes the hair on the back of your neck rise, makes some people slightly nauseous, it makes some people feel really cold. And the thing that was really fascinating was then they were able to reproduce those conditions in a virtual vault setup, put a pair of virtual reality goggles on people, and they got the same ghost responses. That tells us not something that's ha- happening externally as ghosts actually appearing. It's something that's happening between our ears, and I find that sort of thing fascinating. And you talk to other people about that, and they start to say, "Oh, wow, that's really interesting." And hopefully, you planted a little kernel there. That next time, when they you know see something about a ghost, they'll think, "Oh, I wonder if it's this."
0: They did a similar experiment with that, possibly a follow-on with a, an orchestra. Yes. Uh, and they had various audiences come in, and some some of the performances they played some infrasound, and and.
3: Yep. Yes, and they, they, people reported those kinds of, you know, the, the hair on the back of the neck. Spookiness and, and like. the other thing that's interesting, is, again, you can go at a certain frequency and you'll um, make the, the viscous, vitreous jelly in the eyeball um, oscillate. And that will produce patterns and things on the periphery of your vision which could explain quite a lot, too, again, about the way in which people see things. And, of course, you look at ordinary eyes will have proteins and things that will waft around in there and will occasionally put a, a ghostly shape that will wander across your vision but never be quite in the front because any time you look at it, it shifts in your vitreous vicious jelly. So here's
0: some of these hardball questions I promised you.
3: Oh, yeah. Some people
0: might argue that the New Zealand sceptics doesn't get out in, in, the, in the public eye very often that maybe we should be seeing more
3: of New Zealand sceptics in the media and more maybe on the street activism? It would be really great to get more in the media. It can be quite hard to get in the media because it's not newsworthy. It's much more newsworthy to have a medium come through and say, look, I'm talking to dead people, than it is you know, to actually record somebody saying, well, no, no, you're not. Uh, I yeah. put a press release out the other day on should our universities be supporting the tour of mediums when they're using psychological manipulative techniques that their own academic psychology departments would not pass through an ethics board. And Morning Report, we're going to do a piece on it, and then the Tiger Woods story broke, and so it's much more important to have a story about a celeb guy who runs into the back of a tree at two o'clock in the morning over in the state it can be quite hard to get that kind of information and again to get enough information there's this idea that you have balance but what balance tends to mean in these sorts of things is let's run a you know if we have a five minute story let's run four and a half minutes on the medium because what they're doing is really exciting and interesting and they're playing around with ghosts and whatnot and we can use special effects and sound and make them sound really neat and then we'll have this little 30 second balance clip of somebody saying well we don't think that's actually what's happening
0: which, of course, doesn't give you enough time because you can't do it in sound bites.
3: No, and we've tried, um, any number of people actually have tried proposing or pitching um, the idea of sceptics-type documentaries, and it's very rare that something like that happens. I mean, the nearest we've had to it happen here, I guess, will be um, Jeremy Wells on Eating Media Lunch. He did quite a number of fairly close and hard looks at the various woo industries of one form or another out there. But we don't actually have much in the way of current affairs in New Zealand now. It's all been sort of done down to, you know, a seven-minute celeb story and a seven-minute human interest story, and, and that's pretty much it. And, of course, we also run into the difficulty, like, for example, when uh, Asling Symes went missing up in Auckland, that wee girl that disappeared. There was a lot of comment about uh, Deb Webber on breakfast television. She was busy promoting her tour um, around the New Zealand, and she was asked about what she'd seen with the little girl, and she said, oh, yes, you know, ditch, fallen, et cetera. Um, This was at a time when all the media was actually focusing on ditches and drains and things like that. When we commented about how we thought that was rather an opportunistic thing to do, I got a lot of very abusive emails from people saying, you know, how dare you make opportunity of of this event? And, in fact, I had actually been asked to respond to the earlier opportunists. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. The interesting thing that intrigued me on that particular one was that none of the people who wrote to me saying how wonderful psychics were could actually spell the word. (laughs) (laughs) a lot of physics talking to the dead out
0: there you know i I might be getting myself in trouble with this question but since you raised it do you get the general impression that people that believe in strange things for example the psychics and the homeopathy do they tend to be less intelligent than the skeptics i'm only saying that because my i myself am (laughs) particularly intelligent and uh and most of the skeptics i know are also very intelligent but but on the
1: other but on the other hand i've known a lot of very intelligent people who believe a lot of very strange things
0: Yes. Well, I was actually asking Vicky, though, so <laughs> if we could let her answer.
3: Sure. Well, as the phrase goes, it's not how much you've got, it's what you do with it.
0: Right. <laughs> Wait, what's uh, that supposed yeah. to mean?
3: <laughs> <laughs> you can find very well-educated people who nonetheless will believe in, in the weirdest things on no evidence whatsoever. You can find very bright people who will believe in weird things on the basis of no, what, no things whatsoever. I think this difficulty comes where people will latch onto an idea and will hang to that irrespective of what other information comes out. And, I mean, we know in human psychology that that's the way in which, to a certain extent, we are hardwired to find a, look for a pattern, find an explanatory schema for it, and hang on to it because it might be right, and then to look for evidence that proves that we are right.
1: And disregard any evidence that, that proves otherwise.
3: Yeah, and I, I often say to people, well, I think that there's actually a really big step from going from there's a really bright light in the sky and I don't know what it is, it can't be a plane and it can't be a planet, the big step comes from saying, Therefore it must be a UFO driven by aliens who come here to you know, to look at us. There's a huge step there and what's wrong with saying, Well, I don't actually know what that is and leaving it at that. And I think that's the thing that's really interesting that often will define a skeptic. They'll be prepared for not knowing everything or leaving something in the realm of the unknown.
0: You don't think there's any sort of clear dividing line in terms of intelligence between no. you, your believers and your
3: no, I, I think, uh, again, it, it just depends on, on how you use it, whether you're willing to question things. I guess partly um, whether you're strong enough, whether intellectually, psycholo- psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever you like to put it, to actually ask questions of the world. And I think that might have, and here we can go on another controversial area, that might have a bearing on why there are relatively fewer women in the skeptics than there are men in organised scepticism.
0: I don't think I'm going to go there, to be honest. So maybe that could
3: be a topic for a future podcast. And we'll oh, you're a brave, brave man. To, we'll get you in to talk about that as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. What, what's
1: current at the moment?
3: What's current at the moment? Um, we had, uh, of course, we had the, the case up north with the wee girl that went missing. Um, I've just put together a, a media eye section for the New Zealand Skeptics website, which documents all the high-profile missing children and missing persons cases that haven't been helped by psychics because it's very easy to forget year after year after year the fact that these people kept popping up and not doing any help whatsoever. I guess one of the things that's useful for people to know about is the whatstheharm.net website, because people will often say, well, what's the harm in believing these things? It doesn't really matter, does it? And, And we say, well, actually, yes, it does. If you don't think critically about things, You can get economically exploited, you can get emotionally exploited, you can get physically exploited, whether we're talking about mediums or alternative health people or tarot card readers or whatever. And I think it it makes for a stronger society where we have the strength and the capability and the willingness to stand up and say, well... Show us your evidence.
0: And I've just realised I had a note written down here to ask you about this. The 1080, you've been
3: involved with that. Yeah, the 1080 one uh, was an interesting interesting one. The New Zealand Skeptics gave the Bent Spoon Award this year to the Graf Brothers who produced a documentary on Poisoning Paradise about the use of 1080 in New Zealand and how it was a, a terrible thing. And while we would agree with them that it is not necessarily the absolute wonder thing out there to get rid of possums and stuff, it does have problems. Nonetheless, it's better than not doing anything at all for our native flora and fauna. And it's particularly much better than, say, for example, taking um, bird life, dead marine life off to an electroacupuncture machine and saying, oh, yes, we can detect 1080 as some well-meaning soul did up in Auckland and ended up with an entire article in the Herald on Sunday saying that uh, this machine had proved positive tests for 1080 in the Hauraki Gulf when it hasn't been used there in, what, six, eight years? if we're going to make decisions about our environment, we have to make it on the basis of science, not pseudoscience. And that's something that we've got to be really cautious about.
0: Well, thank you very much, Vicky. That was a brilliant interview.
3: Um,
0: <laughs> I think, in fact, our, our podcast, we were originally slating it to have it about 20 or 30
3: minutes. So I think we've just done it. And well, you have got about 47. By the time you edit it down, you've probably got a good 30 at least. Yeah,
0: yeah. Thank so you. we don't need to talk at all. We'll just, we'll just play your interview and that'll be it. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, can you come back next week? <laughs> No, I'm away.
3: (laughs) All right, brilliant. Thank you, Vicky. (laughs) Thanks, Vicky. Thanks, thanks, guys, for setting this up. I really appreciate it. It's great to be able to get out into a different medium and a different channel. No problem. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back. Uh Uh-huh, certainly. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks, guys. That was great. It was,
0: yes. Um, I enjoy talking to Vicky. She's got thousands and thousands of stories, and she's always got something to talk about. So that brings us to the... Penultimate segment, which is my word of the day. And today's word is a basinate. To blind someone by putting a red hot copper basin near their eyes. How useful Which is a word that you will probably need to know when the fundamentalists take over.
2: You've got no red hot poker handy. just use a basin. Makes sense. When was this used?
0: Oh, ask me the difficult questions, you bastard! I don't know. I've just got. a I first found a web page that had cool words on it when I was trying to find a better acronym for the name of the podcast because people didn't like the completely unnecessary skeptical well, it, podcast.
2: It, it must have been fairly prevalent for people to instead of saying, "Why don't we blind this guy by putting?" Red hot copper basin
0: near his eyes. It must have happened so often for that it. they needed a word for yep. it. it. Makes sense. It does. It uh, absolutely that does. That's how they discovered that. Which leaves us with the quote. Craig is going to give us a quote. Oh, and you got to do that cool thing that the um, the skeptics guide do where you yell it out at the end. Oh, no, I will not. Spill <laughs> oh, a small. No. <laughs> you
1: know, do the quote. I'm not going to channel J. The quote of the day comes from none other than Charles Darwin who wrote in the descent of man in 1871 ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge it is those who know little not those who know much who so positively assert that this or that problem will never be solved by science charles
0: darwin yeah well done <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> well I don't think that was quite a twenty-minute podcast, but when we stick the interview in, it'll, it'll bring it up long, to about a half an hour. Exactly in my interviews, um, yeah. and yeah, that was the completely unnecessary skeptical podcast, the cusp. And we'll hope have you enjoy soon. What's that? We'll have a website. Yeah, we we, soon. we promise we'll have a website. In fact, by the time you have this podcast, you'll probably we'll probably have the website up and running because uh, well, you'll need a website to download the podcast from. So I hope you like the website that we're working on. Right now, if you have any thoughts about what we've talked about today, or if you've got a topic you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us on the contact us page of our website.